0: Well, for the final time, at least in the study, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, we'll be looking at the end of this book in chapter 12. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. Let me read that for us. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 9. Solomon writes, In addition to being a wise man... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, and he pondered and searched out and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of the wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. The history of the world is really a series of chapters in the same book. It's the record of people trying to make sense of the world, a world that doesn't always make sense. Life is hard. We bury our friends. We bury our family. Our pleasure doesn't last as long as our problems. We get old ourselves. Our bodies break down. Things aren't always fair. Life sometimes seems to be angry at us. And yet, it makes us ask, is this it? Is this all there is? God has been so faithful, however, to give us answers and answers to life's enigmas. Every man is born to adversity, Solomon says. And every man longs for the question to be answered, why? One of the clearest places in the Bible for giving us these answers Although these answers are not always as satisfying as we would hope they would be, at least in this world, is the book of Ecclesiastes. He gives us, in a sense, handlebars to steer this broken bicycle that we've given, been given through this world and this life. We've taken a long time to get to this point in our study, and I trust that it's been worth it. This is a book written by a special man at a special time in his life, a special point in his life. And I think that it's something you ought to tuck away in your heart to be able to make a, really a life's study of, a book that you can sit down and read in just a few minutes and have some perspective and some altered perspective if you need it. I believe the whole Bible is relevant, obviously, but Ecclesiastes is particularly relevant for us in this day, in this decade, in this country, certainly in this millennium. It represents... The questions that we ask, the questions the answers that we uh, long for, and it, as we said at the very beginning of the book, <laughs> quoting the, the great theologian Mick Jagger who said, "I can't get no," And he was right, even though he tried, and he tried, and he tried and he tried. That's exactly what Solomon's saying. You can find satisfying moments in your life, but if you look for satisfaction in this world and in this life, and in this life alone, you're going to be left empty. Remember the illustration we've used all the way through this book? It's juicy fruit. It's that great, delicious, sweet gum you throw in your mouth, and it tastes so wonderful for about 30 or 40 seconds. And then your tongue gets thick and your mouth gets dry and your breath gets wretched and you want either more gum or you want to spit it out. But it is satisfying in the beginning. It does bring some level of of joy in the moment. It's just an illustration of what Solomon said in this life. Things will give you happiness for a moment, but, but they don't last. Everything you want, you can get and you'll still want more. Everything you want to experience, you can do and you'll still want to do something else. Now, Solomon has outlined throughout this book, especially in chapter 2, places where people have looked for meaning and satisfaction. Science. but well, Science has led to skepticism and more questions than answers. Pleasure, which has led to an endless cornucopia of entertainment and amusements that only make us want more without any degree or sense of contentment. Things, owning things, materialism, which... Makes us always want more and more and more and we want things to store our more and more and things to shine and wax and take care of our more stuff and it doesn't satisfy. Power, which leads just to step on others' souls to make it to the top. And even religion, which leads to skepticism and criticism if it's religion without the true and living God. Now, let's wind this whole book up by remembering where we start and remembering where we are. This is one of the wisdom books. Uh, the wisdom books are Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and Song of Songs or Song of Solomon. Psalms provides us a manual of worship, pondering the mysteries of God. Proverbs, which Solomon organized and wrote, uh, provides us a manual for instructions on wise moral decision making and wise moral living. Job answers the mystery of theodicy: How can we trust a good and living God when there's bad and awful things that are happening? in our lives, and then Song of Solomon, which addresses the subject of passion and purity, romance and sex in the context of God, and then there's Ecclesiastes. It's what we would call a theistic philosophy, a philosophy of life that has a God-centeredness. We could look at it like this. It's the greatest graduation speech ever given. It's painfully honest. It asks questions that can only be asked by a man who's willing to be honest with himself and honest with life. How can you find meaning in life in a world of painful injustices, meaningless repetitions, short lived good times, work and work and work? King Solomon cuts through all of that, clears up the muddy water with divine wisdom and insight. He's the third king of Israel. The last king of the United Monarchy, as you know, the wisest man to ever live except for Jesus himself, rich beyond his wildest imagination. Imagine having so much money, there was nothing, literally nothing you could not own if you wanted to buy it. You were that wealthy. He had an unmitigated power, meant that he could experience anything he wanted. The resources and the power to have anything and do anything. And he had all he wanted and did all he wanted. And still, he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. We know that his life was wrecked, 1 Kings 11 tells us, by pagan women who he brought into his life. Who, 1 Kings 11 says, turned his heart away from God. After being warned and warned, don't bring these godless women from foreign nations who are worshiping vain idols into your life in romance and love. He loved them more than he loved God. And they turned his heart, sure as God prophesied, they turned his heart away from the true and living God to serve, worship, and build altars in Israel for these idols. His life wrecked and crashed and burned At the end of, uh, at the middle, rather, of 1 Kings 11, you, you hear the last of Solomon, and it's not a good ending. But Ecclesiastes tells us that sometime before the end of his life, he came to his senses, returned to God, regained perspective, and that's frankly hope for all of us. It's never too late to turn back to God. I remember a a junior high youth pastor who over and over would say this phrase and it stuck all these decades later. He said, Listen, students, you can take 10, 20, 50 steps away from God, but it's only one step back in repentance. That's a great insight. Solomon turns back to God and he writes and pens. Ecclesiastes. It's been called the black sheep of the Bible. Many rabbis that would debate over whether or not hands should even touch this book. It's been viewed with profound skepticism, supreme suspicion. Most liberals like to separate it into different authors the preacher, the wise man, the skeptic. But there are dangerous examples of conservatives who've flirted with really unrational views of this book. For example, the Catholic view of this book is this: the musings of a rational man trying to reason himself to God. Others think it's a preacher who comes to despair that all is hopelessness. In other words, it's a book of gloom and doom. Another says it's an attempt to reason yourself to God. The Schofield Reference Bible, this is hard to even read. The Schofield Reference Bible, which I grew up on, in in the study notes to Ecclesiastes, says this, quote, This is the book of man under the sun, reasoning about life. It is a book produced by human reason and apart from revelation. The philosophy it sets forth, which makes no claim to revelation, but inspiration is recorded for our instruction and represents the worldview of one of the wisest men, but is purely human thought. It is not truth from God as it is presented, end quote much as I love my old Schofield Reference Bible, it's just not true. There's no aspect of this book that has been, not been, rather, the subject of debate and argument, authorship, date, message. And that makes me curiously tilt my head because the message of Ecclesiastes is this. Enjoy life under the sun before God why would anyone want to throw rocks at that book and that message when it's exactly what we most long to hear from God? We've looked at this message over and over and over. He says, Solomon says, life is broken. It's severely broken. The world is broken. But there are still enjoyments and only a believer in God can take those enjoyments and give glory to God in them, knowing that there's still a greater joy in God himself. That's the, me- the message. It's simple. Even more so, some people think that this is, this is wisdom and revelation at, at like the second story level that you need a, 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 an intellectual ladder to get up to. And yet, as chapter 12 informs us at the beginning... Solomon says, remember your creator in the days of your youth, telling us that it's addressed to young people. It's a pretty heavy book, addressed to young people, but I think it's a book that our young people need to hear. Life is broken and only God can fix it. The title tonight is a Fixed Life in a Broken World. We worked hard and long to get to this last paragraph, which tells us how to have A fixed life in a world that is severely broken. So let's break down these last verses, verses 9 through 14, into four responses to a broken world. Four responses to a broken world. This is Solomon's final admonition to to us. Four responses to a world that is broken. These are simple, these don't need a lot of explanation. You can take this to the fourth grade Sunday school class and read it to them, and they can take it in pretty easily. But that doesn't take away from the gravitas of this section, this paragraph, this admonition. The first response to a broken world is this. Solomon says, learn to listen to the right counsel. Learn to listen to the right counsel. And if you are... Let me use the biblical terms. If you were under 30, which was the kind of the youth was from 30 down, listen to Solomon. All of us should, but especially our younger generation. Listen to the right counsel, he says. Look at verse 9. In addition to being a wise man, the preacher, stop right there, he talks of himself in third person here. The preacher, Koheleth is the Hebrew word, The preacher also taught the people knowledge. So not only was Solomon wise, he actually became a teacher of Israel and taught the people knowledge, what they really needed to understand. He also pondered, searched out, and arranged many Proverbs. There's the writer of the Proverbs. Remember, Solomon didn't write all the Proverbs. Right there in Proverbs it says, these are the collections of, these are the collections of. He arranged them, he collected them. Why? So that Rehoboam, his son, would hear the wisdom of God canonized in this proverbial understanding of wisdom and would not go the way that Solomon went. And all you have to do is read the second half of 1 Kings 11 and you'll see that Rehoboam one-upped Solomon in his lack of application of wisdom. He tried to lead by ignoring older counsel and accepting the wisdom of his peers. Verse 10, the preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. correctly. Don't let that delightful throw you off. He wasn't trying to write like little uh, poetry for Hallmark. Delightful means words in which your soul could find joy and meaning and delight and to write them correctly. Word correct means honestly. To look at the the world, to look at life in an honest fashion, from an honest perspective. The words of wise men are like goads. A goad was a stick that you would prod a donkey or or, or cattle that was pulling a cart or an ox to prod it along to get it going. It's like a goad, these words are. Masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They actually anchor something Securely and are given by one shepherd. That one shepherd, I think, goes beyond Solomon's authorship to the great author of all Scripture, the Lord himself. That's why in most of your Bibles, the word shepherd is probably capitalized. But beyond this, my son, be warned. And let me just stop right here. If you're a student, don't make this verse your life verse. Okay? <laughs> think about this. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Don't turn that in as a homework assignment, students. So, this is what God said. Verse 9 speaks of the book of Ecclesiastes. Verse 10, these delightful and truthful words that bring joy and insight. Verse 11, the combination of the words goad and nail speak of Solomon's twofold effort to stimulate us and nail down our convictions, establish this teaching in our memory. Motivation and anchor. The book is aimed at producing faithfulness, prodding the sluggish, securing the flighty. And then verse 11 is a direct claim that they are written and inspired by the very God of the universe himself, one great shepherd. It's the equivalent of saying, Thus says the Lord. Solomon is saying, Listen. Listen to me. Listen to the right counsel. The voices that we have, not only in the younger generation, in all of our ears for counsel in this day where the internet is at full fast fury, where multiple news networks shout at us 24-7, where there are are, uh, things printed and things broadcast. We're constantly forced to ask, who are we listening to? Who do we believe? A very wise man once told me this if you want an opinion about something, ask one of your peers. But if you want counsel, ask someone who's older and wiser. That's great advice. If you want an opinion, just ask the people around you. People are really willing to give an opinion. An opinion is not counsel. Solomon is saying, listen to what I've written. Listen to what I've said. Listen to the right counsel. Learn to read. Don't, remember, verse 12 is, is hyperbole. He's not saying don't be devoted to books. He's saying don't listen to the wrong books. Don't read the wrong things. In our culture, we can uh, vernacular, we can say read the Bible more than anything else. Be discerning when you read. Just because it's in print doesn't make it true. And just because you're reading something that's secular doesn't mean it's evil either. I often think of Daniel, who uh, who was educated in all the Zoroastrianism of Babylon, and yet he never takes a shot at... The Babylonian education, nothing's ever said that that was bad for him to be educated. It's when they pressed him to have his moral and religious principles before God challenged. That's when things came up against the line he drew in the sand. Listen to the right counsel. Just ask yourself, who do you listen to? Maybe even more, since one shepherd wrote this book and that it would extend to the the two leather covers, ask yourself, do you listen to God as your ultimate counselor? Does God's word, when it's quoted to you, have power? Or are you one of those who say, yes, I know it says that, but, but, hang on, but, that was then, this is now, that was cultural, this is a new day. Listening to the right counsel ultimately means listening to God. Solomon's saying, listen to what I'm saying because I'm inspired, the one shepherd, has inspired me to write this so it's actually scripture that I'm giving you. Listen to the right counsel. A second response to a broken world is this. Number two, fear the ultimate authority. Fear the ultimate authority. This is in the first part of verse 13. The conclusion. When all has been heard, basically he's saying after I've made my arguments, this is my conclusion, is this. And he gives a, a couple of imperatives, a couple of commands. The first one is this fear God. That's why, number two, we say fear the ultimate authority. We come to the self defined conclusion to the argument of the book of Ecclesiastes. The end of the matter, literally. Soap debar, A brief, abrupt, emphatic statement. The conclusion. This is it. Look up, listen. I'm about to stick the dismount, he says. And the first thing is fear God. Now, I won't take the time to go back through this. This has been a theme in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14, 5, verse 7. Chapter 7, verse 18, chapter 8, verse 12, all say, fear God, fear God, fear God, fear God. And we've talked about this over and over, but let me highlight again. The word fear means to be afraid. I know that sometimes in in Sunday school classes we've heard, well, it actually means just a, a, a divine reverence. Well, it does to some extent, but that's because you have a holy fear because you know of who God is and of what he's capable of. We fear threats. That's what makes us afraid. We're afraid of things that would threaten us. Listen, friends, there is no greater threat in the universe than God. Matthew 12, do not fear him who can destroy body. (laughs) Jesus is almost humorous. Don't fear them that can just kill you. And you can see the disciples almost elbowing each other going, did he just say don't fear people who can kill us? He says, no. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I tell you, fear him. Fear God, in other words. Everything Solomon has taught has moved in this book toward this conclusion of fearing God. Think about it. The freedom of a sovereign God, the limits of human wisdom, all the use and abuse of wealth and power, the brevity of life, the certainty of death, all lead to the conclusion and command that we should fear God. I remember R.C. Sproul saying <clears throat> that the greatest weakness of the church in our generation is that there's no fear of God in the pews. I think he's on to something. God is not our buddy. He's not the man upstairs. He's not a guy we check in with on Sundays. So we'll see in a moment, he's the judge He's the Lord. He's the creator. He holds in his power the prerogative to judge in hell forever and the glory to save some by faith, by grace. Fear God. What I find interesting here is we can take a few minutes and explain what that means and give illustrations of what that means and talk about that and give footnotes. Solomon just says, fear God. Fear God. Do you know why, if if you struggle with fearing God, there's a significant reason why that is. It's that you don't know God. Because the greater we know God, the more we will naturally, as a reflex of our soul, fear him. We know God well enough to revere him properly only when we read his word and understand the nature of his character and the depth of his attributes. A third response to life in a broken world, and I want to keep this short and staccato because Solomon does. He doesn't add lots of explanation. Number three, he says, obey the sovereign Lord. Obey the sovereign Lord We've seen the sovereignty of God all the way through this book. Look also in verse 13. Fear God and keep his commandments and lest you think that's for someone else, he says, because this applies to every person. Obedience is at the heart of loving God. Obedience is at the heart of serving God. Obedience is at the heart of trusting God. Obedience is at the heart of worshiping God. Obedience is submitting to God. Jesus said, you will be known as a disciple when you obey God. He told the disciples, I'll know you love me when you obey my commands. I often think of 1 John chapter 2, it's a place I turn often to discuss obedience and uh, assurance rather with people when they ask themselves, am I really a Christian, which is really a prevalent question in a lot of people's hearts. John says in 1 John chapter 2, by this we know we've come to know him. Whatever he says next is pretty important. By this we know we've come to know him if, conditional clause, if we keep his commandments, there's obedience. The one who says, hey, I've come to know him, and that person does not keep his commandments, John says, he's a liar, and the truth isn't even in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God, has truly been perfected by this obedience, Obeying God's commands, by this we know that we are in him, the one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as Jesus, as he walked. Obedience is not hard to understand. It's just hard to do. Most of us as believers, as Christians, understand what it means to obey. Our consciences have been enlivened. Very rarely do we need book, chapter, and verse to know whether we're doing right or wrong, though book, the book, chapter, and verse does inform us. James says to him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, it's sin. We obey the sovereign God. Fear God, keep his commandments. You cannot know the commandments unless you read his word, right? Yes, this is the read your Bible more sermon. How can you possibly know how to keep the commandments that you don't know? You know, this brings up an issue of obedience and when we talk about obeying the commandments, it just brings up again, This idea of postponed obedience. I think there's outright obedience, but I think there's also postponed obedience. This idea that we're going to obey God in this certain category that we're convicted about. We're gonna obey God in that someday, or eventually, or tomorrow, or next week. Postponed obedience is actually disobedience. Disobedience. Fear God. Keep his commandments. And by the way, don't think that this is, don't think you're an exception. Look what it says. This applies to every man. No one gets a free pass. No one gets an excuse when they get to the Lord that I I, I, I didn't know your commandments. You understand that, especially you and I, with the Bibles that we hold and the church we go to and the friendships that we have, we are accountable to every word in this book. We're accountable to obey every one of his commands. He says this applies to everyone, which is another way of saying just because you don't know what God says doesn't mean you're not responsible to obey him. So we better know what God says. Then Solomon's final exclamation point on the whole book is number four. The fourth summary response to a life in a broken world is this. Remember the final judgment. Remember the final judgment. Look at the um, last verse, verse 14. Four, God will bring Do you underline things in your Bible? Do you you circle things in your Bible? Do you highlight things in your Bible? I would suggest underlining the word every. For God will bring every act, everything we do to judgment. Everything, there's another one to underline, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. The all-knowing God sees our points of obedience. He sees our, our moments of faithfulness as well as our points of disobedience. He'll bring everything to light. Here for the last time, Solomon escorts you and me over to our own coffin. He says, look over the hedge. One day you will lie there. And your body will go into the earth, and it will decay, and yet your soul will stand before the judgment of the living God. It's been a recurring theme in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 17, chapter 9, verse 11, says we'll be judged. Now, this is the point which is so amazing how this book ends. Everyone's going to stand before the judgment of God. That is the, the, the launching pad to the New Testament and the on-ramp to the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Exactly what Solomon said. Hebrews 9.27, It is appointed for man once to die, then The judgment. Not long ago, I had a discussion with someone I know who who actually goes to to hunt ghosts. Sounds kind of funny and sounds kind of silly. Goes to haunted places to look for ghosts. I was quite surprised when I said, but that's impossible because it's a point if a man wants to die, then, then judgment. So, Whatever phenomenon you're finding and whatever phenomenon you're you're experiencing, that's not people. You may very well be experiencing something, but my suspicion is it's the demonic world because it's not disembodied souls. Why? It's the point of a man wants to die, then the judgment. No one gets a second chance. No one gets a probation period. There is no purgatory in which you're going to purge your sins and people will pay you out of that situation to get you into heaven. That brings us to our need for the gospel, doesn't it? Because God in Christ has judged, judged the souls of those who believe. Every sin will be punished. Every act will be, will be punished the evil in our hearts, the bad that we've executed, all sin will be punished either on the cross or in hell forever. So Solomon's ending verse is really the opening to understanding the truth of Jesus, the gospel itself. Are we listening, fearing, obeying, and remembering? Do we remember the final judgment? I mean, isn't it true that every time we sin, that's a willful stiff-arming of the conscious knowledge of God's final judgment that's coming? Don't we have to suspend that knowledge in order to sin? Maybe even disbelieve it or postpone it? Listen, fear, obey, remember. Listen, fear, obey, remember. Pretty simple, isn't it? Solomon is bringing the youth group, the remember your creator when you're young group around. And he's sitting around the campfire and he's saying, listen, fear, obey, remember. So he said at the very beginning, it's like he's up on this cliff trying to jump over a canyon in a car and he speeds and he speeds toward the cliff and he doesn't even make it a few feet off of the cliff before the car dives into the canyon, crashes. He jumps out of the car, he's on fire, rolls himself out, looks back up at us on the cliff about to get in a similar car and he's saying, don't do what I did. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's a sermon saying, listen, fear, obey, remember. How do you respond to Solomon? George Swinnock, boy, this is so profound. He wrote of the end of Ecclesiastes with these words. Men that are in the valley think... That if they were at the top of such a hill, they would touch the heavens. Men that are in the bottom of poverty or disgrace or pain think if they could get up to such a mountain, such measure of riches, honors, and delights, they could really reach out and hold happiness. Now, Solomon, he had gotten to the top of this hill and seeing so many scrambling and laboring so hard, nay, riding on one another's necks and pressing on another to death to get the foremost, does seem thus to tell them this. Sirs, you are all deceived in your expectations. I see the pains that you take to get up to the place This place, thinking that when you get here, you shall touch the heavens and reach happiness. But I am here before you at the top of the hill. I have treasures and honors and pleasures in a variety and in abundance. And yet, I find the hill full of quagmires instead of delights, and so far from giving me satisfaction that it causes much vexation. Therefore, be advised, spare your pains, spend your strength for that which will turn to more profit, for, believe it, you do but work at the labor in vain, because vanity of vanities all is vanity, says the preacher. Solomon made it to the top. He had everything. He did everything. He was everything. And it didn't bring him happiness. And so he pinned Ecclesiastes, say, what are you, what are you looking for? Do you really think you're going to find it outside of God? Outside of listening, fearing, obeying, and remembering. I think Solomon sets us up to say this simple reality. Jesus Christ is the password that unlocks life. Anything else will just lead to frustration. But he's also told us this. Enjoy life while you can. Enjoy life while you're young. Enjoy it before you get older. And when you're older, enjoy it before you get even older. And before you get even older and older. Enjoy life as you can because... Solomon is saying in a world with no vaccinations, no antibiotics, no surgeries, no medicines, there will be a day when death actually is more attractive than life if you're ready to meet the judge. And we know that judge to be the Lord Jesus. So, do you believe his conclusion? Are you indeed listening to the right counsel? Are you fearing the ultimate authority, God himself? Are you obeying the sovereign Lord? And do you remember that there is a judgment coming, an ultimate final judgment that you can only be protected by, by faith in Jesus Christ and believing the gospel? You know, week in and week out, I have to tell you, week in and week out, I... um, I find myself explaining the gospel again and again. And and week in and week out, standing here, I just wonder how many people have heard the gospel so many times, and yet still it's not a reality. You are in dire danger in that ultimate judgment. Is Jesus your Lord? Is He your, your sovereign master? Then He'll become your Savior. Is he the one calling the shots? Is he the one whom you obey? Does, does his voice make a difference in your life? Does his word bear the ultimate decision making breaking point in your life? You can't fear God can't keep his commandments, you can't be ready for the judgment, and you certainly won't listen to the right counsel unless your heart has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and the gospel. I trust that you won't leave tonight without making that a reality and making that right. I found myself, I was looking over my notes this afternoon. We're not going to do this. But I found myself thinking, we've come so far in Ecclesiastes. Now that we kind of get to this last part, it'll be really good to go back and start the whole book over again. And, and now that we see the conclusion, remember this is all intended to be read and heard in one, one sitting. I feel like we're, we're just getting momentum in it and it's over. But here's the good news. It's still in your Bible. You can still read it anytime you want. In one sitting if you want. Every day if you want. Multiple days, if you like, leads us to a perfect point where we want to sit before the Lord in His table. I uh, I want to approach tonight's uh, meditation at the table to just simply ask ourselves: Listen, fear, obey, remember. Where where is our ship? taking on water. Are you listening to the wrong counsel? Do you fear anything and everything but the Lord? Are you obeying your gut instincts, your intuition, your peer pressure around you? Are you remembering? Do you remember that there is a judgment coming? And just to let those, those admonitions kind of be a crockpot in our heart and our soul.